So uh, we've worked our way through from Genesis, through passages in the Old Testament, through some of the prophets in the Old Testament, into the New Testament. And finally, today, we're looking at the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. Tell you what, Emric, you can control it from there for me, if that's all right. No pressure. It's one less thing for me to do. Right, so I will... Right, next one. And with the revamp, I've lost my monitor here. I used to be able to see what was going on. No, go back one. Oh, gosh, go back, go back, go back. Where's it going? Can we control this from the back? All right, there you go. Stop. That's what we want. Cast your mind back to Sarah's household in the early 80s. It's Christmas Day and the family are playing charades. Everybody's had a go, and it is now the turn of Grandpop Stan. He's a very straight-laced, introvert sort of man, very godly man, and he's got to mime for the family something with four words in. He starts off really well. The first word, it's a book, by the way, it's a book. The first word is the. The second word is book. Third word is of, and then he tries to mime the fourth word. He tries all sorts of things to mime what the fourth word is that he is trying to convey. After a few minutes, he's getting frustrated with this, so he, he removes his cardigan. That doesn't give him any more clues, so he takes off his tie, he takes off his shirt, gets down to his vest, and it's only when he is loosening his belt but the family says, stop, stop, we give up, we give up. Please stop. And what he was trying to convey was the book of Revelation. <laughs> Revelation is John's visions that Jesus has overcome evil by his death and his resurrection and will return one day as the true king of the world. That's a wonderful truth. We can have a next one. Revelation is the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. And it's also the only book that promises a blessing to those who read it. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, you will be blessed if you read this book aloud. So you want to be blessed, go home and start reading the book of Revelation out loud. It was written by John, probably the disciple of Jesus, who also wrote the gospel, um, as what's called an apocalyptic text. And what Grand Pop Stan helpfully described for us is that revelation literally means unveiling. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. So this is not John's unveiling of Jesus Christ. It isn't anybody else's unveiling of Jesus Christ. It isn't Jesus Christ's unveiling of anything else. It's Jesus Christ saying, this is my unveiling of myself that I am giving to you. We often get distracted in the book of Revelation because it is absolutely ram-packed with symbols. Here's one of the beautiful verses from chapter 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last, this is Jesus speaking, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. 
But because of the imagery that is used in the book of Revelation, and we'll touch on some of this, it's really easy to get distracted into saying, what on earth does that mean? When John wrote this, he wrote it not as a predictive code about the secrets of the times to come, but what he does is he draws heavily and extensively on Old Testament references and images and symbols and visions which would have been familiar to the reader of this book. And he helps us interpret those in light of what is happening now and what will happen in the future. The content of a book suggests that most of it is yet to happen. And it was sent as a, a circular letter to seven churches. What I mean by that is it wasn't written on a round bit of paper. It was a letter that was written for seven different churches to read out loud and then pass on to the next church to do the same and so on and so on. So this is what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do this morning. I am going to avoid conjecture. I'm going to avoid conspiracy and speculation. And I'm going to deal with historic accuracy and theological certainty and eschatology. Gosh, what does that mean? Eschatology is a study of the end times. What is going to happen in the future? Because that is what this book helps us to understand. I'm going to try and make it relevant and I'm going to get into principles and not particulars. Okay, let's have the next one. Emmerich's doing a great job there, isn't he? Fantastic. Oh, stop it. Did you do that deliberately? It's the one with the cartoon on. Right, I am heavily indebted to the Bible Project. Yeah, that's the one. So the Bible Project, um, those of us who are doing the Read Scripture course will often have a video to watch in it, and their videos on the book of Revelation are an absolute masterclass. So some of the content I'm sharing this morning comes from that, and this is a, a screenshot of some of it. So what I've done is I'm using the timeline that is given, or the milestones that is given for us in the Bible Project's take on this. So we're going to look at the seven letters, the sacrifice lamb, seven judgments, final battle, and God's kingdom. First of all, the first few chapters, one to three, is where John wrote the book of Revelation to encourage believers in seven churches to resist sin, to remain faithful, although persecuted, and to anticipate the reign of Jesus. And what he sees is seven lampstands, and those represent seven churches, and that is drawing on an Old Testament reference as well. I will make these available on the web for us, because I do rely heavily on pictures when I tend to speak. And he talks to seven churches. And uh, the structure of what he says to seven churches, or what he said to seven churches by Jesus, is always a mix of something really positive and affirming, and then some sort of critique about them how they could do better so they're sent as a comfort and a challenge to remain faithful but also to address things like apathy affluence and immorality and in those letters are set out that in the days to come those churches would experience what is called tribulation trials and the letters to the churches of the encouragement of Jesus Christ to remain faithful and true to him in spite of the economy, society, oppressive regimes in which these churches find themselves. And it sets out that 
if those churches and those individuals in those churches remain faithful, they will be conquerors and they will rule and reign with Jesus forever in the age to come. That is a glorious truth. So those letters were written to those churches, but the principles apply to us as well. But we are to remain faithful and true to Jesus Christ, not compromise, not be drawn into affluence or subject to apathy, but to be fully on fire and wholehearted, wholeheartedly hold to the truth of Jesus. That's chapters 1 to 3, the seven letters. I'm going to move through this. Next, this is really the key to the whole book, where in chapters 4 and 5, there's this image of a sacrificed lamb. So the Old Testament's promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through Jesus, the crucified Passover lamb and Messiah, who alone opened the sealed scrolls. Let me explain what's going on here. John sees a vision of the throne room of heaven, and it's quite wacky, to be honest. There's all sorts going on. There are what he describes as living creatures, and those are not creatures that we would recognize on the earth today. They have wings and they fly and there's wheels and they have faces that do look like creatures we understand, oxes and eagles and all sorts of things. And they are there worshipping God who is seated on the throne. But there is this scroll that is being held and on it are seven seals. Those are wax seals that uh, prevents it being opened. And while all this worship is going on and they're crying out saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, suddenly some others who are gathered around the throne who are called elders, and that's probably a reference to the leaders of the tribes of the Jewish nations in the Old Testament, start crying. And they say, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And there's this moment in heaven where no one is found worthy to open this scroll, to understand the course of history, to see history come to a fulfillment and a culmination, and there is weeping. But then John hears one of the elders cry, Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah from the line of David. That's a reference to Jesus from the Old Testament. Now, listen carefully here. The elders say, Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah from the Old Testament is here. He is worthy to open the scroll. But when John turns around to see what the elders have cried out about, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb. He hears that the lion is worthy. But when he turns, he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Chapter 5 and verse 6. Why is that? Because the victory of Jesus Christ has come about through self-sacrifice and crucifixion on the cross. He is not a warrior and king in the sense of an earthly king. He rules and reigns through his, through his humility, through his servanthood, through his willingness to die for the whole of creation for you and I. And that is what makes him worthy to open this scroll and to tell us about the future. And when that happens, worship kicks off again. The weeping stops, and the one on the throne and the lamb are worshipped with words like, holy, holy, holy 
You are worthy of honour, glory and power and respect because you have been found worthy to open the scroll. And that is the, the core of the book of Revelation is Jesus is seen as a sacrificed lamb. Let's move on on this timeline. We should be on seven judgments now, Emric. Oh, he's gone the wrong way. There it is. Stop. Right. What happens now is a little bit convoluted because there are three sets of seven, and seven is used often in the book. I won't explain why, but it's uh, interrupted by a deeper description of something else. But let's start with this. So there are three sets of seven divine judgments that are shown, but they do not generate repentance in the nations. That's a message of all the different judgments. Instead, only God's mercy shown through Jesus and believers who die for their enemies does. In other words, does bring repentance of a nation. So that is a huge challenge for us. So John sees uh, these seven different judgments. There's these seven seals. We've touched on those a bit. There's seven trumpets, and there's seven bowls. And each one of those ends up with the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord speaks of that day when Jesus will return to bring everything together under him to create, as we're going to see, a brand new heaven and earth. Now, I've heard in my youth many different debates and speculations about when that day will happen. I urge you and encourage you, do not get sucked into them. It will drain you, it will waste your time. Jesus himself said, I don't even know the day on which a father will send me. The most important thing is we, we live as though it could be today. There are two days that are key in the Bible, today and that day when he does come. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, live for Jesus Christ with the whole of our mind, will, strength and might. So let's not speculate about when that will be, but it will happen. It will happen. So he sees these judgments, but also at the end of them, John hears of an army that is coming to help Jesus rule and reign on the earth. And a similar thing happens to what I've just described with the whole lion and the lamb things. He hears of a lamb's army of 144,000. And that is an intentional reference written in the book of Revelation, um, which reflects the military census that is described in the book of Exodus. So there was 12 tribes in Israel, and each has 12,000 in the army, 12 times 12,000 mathematicians, 144,000. So he sees this army, he hears of this army, but then a most remarkable thing happens. He turns around and he doesn't see an army of 144,000 that he's heard of, he sees this, chapter 7, verse 9. John sees a great multitude from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people, from every language, because Jesus Christ is the saviour of the whole world. And the gospel will be preached until every nation has had chance and turns to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. So the Lord's army isn't this contained army of the Israelites of 144,000. We are part of the Lord's army. Jews who have turned to Christ are part of the Lord's army. Brazilians who have turned to Christ are part of the Lord's army. French, who else have we got here? We've got, uh, where's the German intern? Where is she? You're part of the Lord's army because it is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and they all worship before the throne of God. 
and before the Lamb. It's wonderful. Verse 15 of chapter 11 says this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That is a scatological certainty. It's scatology. It's talking of the days to come. Jesus will reign forever and ever. Every kingdom of this world will be subject to him. And we want, and Jesus dearly wants the kingdoms of this world to turn to him. It says elsewhere in the Bible that God is not willing that any man should perish. But the way repentance is brought about that is shown in the book of Revelation is not through these judgments, but by the way the army of the Lamb wholeheartedly follows Jesus and lays down their life for their neighbours and their enemies. Wow. Their neighbours and their enemies. Seven judgments. Moving on in milestones, we come to the final battle. That's it. And there's a couple of battles that are graphically described with what seems to be fantasy language and characters and beasts and people. And I'm just going to try and draw out some principles from this. The key is this, and it's there written for us. Several symbols signify spiritual and earthly battles. The church, us, can choose to resist Babylon, I'll explain that, and follow the Lamb, Jesus, or follow the beast, I'll explain that, and suffer defeat. Now, these battles might be spiritual battles, or they might be earthly battles, they might be mixtures of the two. It doesn't really matter because the content and the outcome are the same, however way you view them. But in chapter 12, we see a serpent that attacks the woman and her seed. And if you were here when I talked you through some of the images in the book of Genesis, you might be thinking, well, that rings a bell, because... When Satan tempted Adam and Eve and God intervened, he said to Satan, you are cursed and although you will strike the heel of the offspring of the woman, that offspring will crush your head. And here we see the serpent or the snake reappearing to fight against the people of God, to, to stir up the nations to evil and injustice. But he doesn't conquer because it is said of the church and us and the people of God that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of God. We have triumph. We are victorious. We will win out. This will all come to pass through Jesus. And then he goes on to describe um, another battle, and I'm going to touch on that in the next image in chapter 13. But in chapter 14, we see again this lamb's army being raised up to defeat these two beasts that have arisen. This is all getting a bit weird, isn't it? Let me try and just uh, unpack it in a moment. And then chapter 15 and 16 is, is the third of these three sets of seven where judgments come and they're poured out in seven bowls. And if you look at the content of the first few of those bowls, they... They mirror the plagues that were given, uh, that were subjected on the people in the book of Exodus. And the point is made, judgment does not bring people to repentance. Love does. 
Love does. Love does. Love your neighbor as you love the Lord your God. For Christ's love compels us. Freely you have received, freely give. We're not here to judge others. We're not here to judge nations. We're not here to judge anybody. We are here to love people and bring them to repentance by experience firsthand the love of Jesus Christ. Right, I want to delve in a little bit. So next slide. Right, stick on this a minute. When I was growing up in my youth, I don't know how long we spent on debating what these beasts were that were described in the book of Revelation and actually draw strong reference from the book of Daniel. But one thing I do remember is this, and this is described in Revelation. The beasts have seven heads and ten horns. I mean, that's weird, isn't it? Horns in the Bible always represent strength. And I remember a great furore amongst the Christian community of the time that someone was suggesting that the European Union was the ten-horned beast. And at that time, there were nine member states of the European Union. This is absolutely true. I went through this and I was... It generated some fear, some speculation, a lot of, I don't know what it generated, looking back. Um, and then a tenth nation joined, which I think was Greece. And then a couple of months later, Spain and Portugal joined at the same time. And so suddenly you had 12 horns. And then as we know through the last couple of decades, that's grown to 28. So all this time and effort and speculation was spent in the Christian press, spent in my youth group debates. I heard it in different conferences. It was Ten Horn Beast was the European Union. I have to say, don't get drawn into it. It is not worth it. It's not worth your time. It's not worth your energy. The other thing that this reference is, I will talk about this in a minute, is this number 666. I'll come on to that in a minute. So there's these earthly battles, and these two beasts represent military powers and economic uh, machines. And what the writer, John, is conveying is that throughout the course of history, you will always have governments, rulers, nations, armies, powers, institutions, whatever you like to call them, that set themselves up against the kingdom of God and the values of Jesus Christ and his ways. And the first one of those was Babylon. And then that was followed by Persia, that was followed by Greece, and to the readers of his book of Revelation, they would have understood Rome. We're under military rule that is oppressive. Christians were being persecuted and put to death under the regime of Rome. So the message is this, that throughout history and even today, nations and powers and rulers will raise up that are not godly, that are not Christian, but they will ultimately be defeated by Jesus when he returns and brings everything under his feet. The second thing that was there was his number 666. And also in my youth, I remember great debate about this number because it's described in the book of Revelation that this is the mark of a beast and it's a number that is stamped on foreheads and anybody without that number would not be able to buy and sell goods. That is written in the book of Revelation. Now the speculation was this because we were just coming into the digital age it was the Visa card, because embedded in the chip, in the Visa card, was a number 666, or Maestro, or credit card, or something like that. I remember debate on this. 
Again, my strong encouragement is do not get sucked into speculation. We will not learn the meaning of 666, the beast, from reading newspaper headlines. We understand it from the book of Revelation that draws on Old Testament imagery. And what John is drawing on here is something that the Jews would have been very familiar with. The Shema. The Shema is described, you can see it bottom left there, in the book of Deuteronomy. And as a mark the devout Jews put on their head and their forearm to remind that all their thoughts and actions should be devoted wholly and solely to God. Now the 666, it's a different mark and it's a mark of, a symbolic mark of all those who follow the way of the world, the evil, the corruption, the greed, the persecution of Christians. Don't worry about what it is. The other thing that it's... uh, is worth saying is in, in the Hebrew language, although this was written in Greek, the writer John would have had knowledge of a Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, uh, letters also equate to numbers, and the word beast, when you take the, the numbers that are assigned to the letters, equals 666. But so does Caesar Nero. So they would have understood from this that, that what they were facing was an earthly oppressive regime that is consistent throughout the ages, whether it's manifest as Babylon, Persia, Greece, Syria, Rome, Hitler, Mao Zedong, whatever. Don't need to worry about what it is. It exists, but we are to stand firm in the knowledge and the truth that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the kingdoms of his world will become the kingdoms of our God. Cool, let's move on. And he, he brings this to a head with describing these final battles where uh, this institution Babylon falls and uh, it's depicted again as weird symbology, symbology symbology symbols where it's this woman riding a dragon and she's drunk on the blood of the martyrs so it's an image of how nations persecute the church and and that happens still nowadays as well but also we read in those chapters that Jesus turns up in the battle. This is glorious. Chapter 19, the day of the Lord is depicted as a final battle where Jesus appears as a bloodied king holding a sword, riding a white horse. Just bear with me on some detail here. Before the battle starts, Jesus is already bloodied on his clothes. Why? Because he's already won the battle at the cross. (laughs) this is wonderful he's not going to take part in a battle with a sword and have to slay anybody because the sword that he holds in his hand is the word of God it says in the book of Revelation so he reminds the forces of evil Satan and his demons of the battle that has already taken place on the cross and through the resurrection of his body that's why he turns up already bloodied not from the battle but to enter the battle and win it by making reference to the blood that has already defeated Satan and his enemies. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. And with the, mouth, with the sword that comes out of his mouth, he proclaims final, eternal judgment. And in chapter 20, we see that the martyrs, those who have died for their faith, are raised to life. They are vindicated. They reign and they are rewarded as they reign with Jesus Christ. That is of great comfort to me. I have friends in northern Nigeria 
who I can't go and visit now because they live in um, states in the far north that are subject to the rule and terror of Boko Haram. And they have lost their lives. I know people who have lost their lives um, for the sake of Jesus Christ because they will not denounce Jesus as Lord. I want to say to my brothers and sisters in Nigeria, you will be vindicated. You will be rewarded. You will reign. I say to the Coptic Christians in Egypt, you will be vindicated. You will reign and rule with Jesus Christ. I say to the underground church in China, you will be vindicated. You will rule and reign with Jesus Christ when he comes. And we too, we know nothing of that level of persecution. But if we remain faithful to Jesus, we will rule and reign with him also. Let's move on. Right, timeline. We're now right at the end of the book of Revelation. Move on. Chapters 21 and 22 talk of the kingdom of God coming in fullness and in permanence. After the rebellion against God and the final battles, King Jesus returns to punish evil, to vindicate his followers and reign forever in the new Jerusalem. This was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah wrote these words, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. And I've written a long bit of scripture. Are you able to read that text in blue? Right. So I said at the start, the book promises that we are blessed if we read this. Can we read aloud that text in blue right at the bottom, starting here? Word then, let's read this aloud together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Those of you who suffer long-term sickness and ill health, it will be gone forever. There will be a new body, a resurrection body. Those of you who are grieving for the loss of loved ones, you will see them again. There will be no more sorrow or pain because Jesus is creating everything new. The next one, because it goes on, it gets even better. After a rebellion, we see this. We see a new creation. We see a brand recreation where a new garden changes into a new Jerusalem so this isn't going back to the beginning of Eden it's a step forward into unknown territory that is even better for when God created an avatar but this time he says it's perfect it's perfect why because there is no presence of sin Satan and his enemies have been defeated and cast out or quarantined, we know that word, don't we? And they're in quarantine for eternity, never to infect again the creation that God is so wonderfully making and will remake. 
he will create a new heaven and a new earth. But there's a peculiar thing when he views this heaven and he views his earth. It's got a river and it's got trees down it. And the trees are for the, the leaves of the trees for, are for the healing of the nations. And they give fruit every month, not every year. Wow, that's amazing. And also he looks and he sees Jerusalem populated by this great army of the Lamb from every tribe and tongue and nation. It is a celebration of the diverse cultures and languages of the world all joined together in worship of the Lamb. But right in the middle there, verse 22 of chapter 21, John said this, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And this is an extension of what we've been looking at in the house of God, the temple of God, where we are temples of God. But then the whole of creation will be filled to the fullness of the glory of God so that God is present by his spirit in everything and through everything so there is no need to go to a temple to worship. It's not only certain people who are a temple, the whole of the recreation is the temple of the living God because he is making all things new. There will be no more night. They will not need the night, light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. They will, be, they will reign forever with him. I can't get my head around it. There's, no, there's going to be no sun, there's going to be no moon, but there is going to be river, there's going to be trees, there's going to be a city but it's because God sustains everything directly by his word and by his spirit. And there is no evil or sin in the world. Right, I've got to now then recap how we got here in the whole of the Bible in three minutes. I'm, I'm going to whip through three slides. First one. Right. I don't expect you to take this in because these are going to go on the web, but I just want to take you on a journey because we started in Genesis, we finished in Revelation, and we've looked at bits between. I'm literally going to read three themes. We've seen that Jesus is the Lamb, and because he is the Lamb, we are free from the penalty of sin. Genesis 1.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's reference to something coming there. Exodus, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Put some of the blood on the top of the doors and on the sides of the door frame. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we're healed. He was led like a lamb to a slaughter. John, in his gospel, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Read this one with me, Revelation 5. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Jesus and Lamb. Next one, Emmerich. Jesus the King, we're free from the, the penalty of sin, but we're free from the power of sin. Genesis, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between our offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike a heel as a veiled reference there. Isaiah prophesies it. Talking of Jesus, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders of his greatness, of his government and peace. There will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Zechariah puts it this way, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous, victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. John 19, speaking of a crucifixion, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. Read this with me, Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. On his robe and on his thigh, he had this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The last one. Jesus, the temple. Not only are we free from a penalty of sin and the power of sin, one day we'll be free from the presence of sin. Genesis starts off. The Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had taken because sin was present. The psalmist reflects, blessed are those who you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Jesus himself declares himself to be the temple. Jesus answered, destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. The temple of which he had spoken was his body. This is talking of you. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's spirit lives in you? Revelation 21, read this with me. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Hallelujah. There's only one response to this. We're going to worship. We're going to ask the band to come up. We're going to use, first of all, a song that is called the Revelation Song because it is taking the words from some of these chapters of Revelation. I hope that's inspired you about Jesus. My intent this morning was to make much of Jesus. And I hope I've done that. And stand together, shall we? We're going to worship. We're going to respond to Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lamb who was slain, the conquering King, and we, his people, being in his presence, loving him.